0: Well, hello there, listeners. It's Susie New here, President of the Australian Society of Anesthetists, and welcome to our podcast. It's called Australian Anesthesia, and it's where we talk about all things relevant to anesthesia in Australia. Some of you may have been following the honeysuckle health proposal that went to the ACCC before Christmas. If you haven't, then this is the episode for you. Peter Waterhouse, Chair of the Professional Issues Advisory Committee, and myself dissect the proposal. Since then, it has been amended. And perhaps the biggest change to note is that on the 21st of May, and we did record this podcast before then, but on the 21st of May, the ACCC released their draft determination. Now, there's been some small changes in their draft determination, which I'll go through at the end of the episode because I think they'll make more sense then. But the premise of value-based contracting, or what is a foray into managed care, is still there. So if that makes you concerned, then good, it makes me terribly concerned. What does this mean? Well, first of all, this is not just relevant for anaesthetists. This is relevant for all of healthcare in Australia, for all patients undergoing any type of procedure, any surgical procedure, any hospital stay, as well as primary medical care and dental care. And I get these proposals look to deliver a fixed cost to patients, so a known cost for their healthcare because we keep hearing about out-of-pocket fees and the uncertainty around that. But what we've seen in market surveys is that what patients value most is being able to trust their clinician and having access to care. And that is what managed care threatens. It can threaten how and where a patient gets treated, and it introduces a commercial arrangement between a doctor and a health insurer they're pretty clear in their proposal that they are going to be offering value-based contracts. And the issue is who defines that value. So what a health insurer might find valuable and worth paying for is, and we've seen this in the US, is different to what a patient or what a health provider might find valuable. Stephen Milgate says in our recent webinar, the entry door into managed care is always softly, softly and U.S. journalist and writer Robert Kuttner said in 1998, coincidentally also on the 21st of May, that managed care sneaked up on physicians. By the time they fully grasped the implications, it was a fait accompli. Physicians are now caught between patients anxious about the availability and reliability of care, and payers, health insurers, demanding further cost control through often perverse financial pressure on doctors. These arrangements stand to steal from the sanctity of the doctor-patient relationship. Whereas usually, my job as an anaesthetist is to advocate for you, the patient. And finally, if you are feeling concerned about the contents of that proposal, then We encourage you to write to the ACCC and share your concerns. Feedback has been requested by the 11th of June, so there isn't much time. The other avenue that you could pursue is by writing to the Federal Health Minister. So, if that is of further interest to you, then I will direct you to our website, asa.org.au. There's a big banner with the words Managed Care on it. Click on the link. It has background material on the ACCC proposal as well as our submission and links to the webinars and other resources that we have prepared. We're constantly updating those resources. So if you have any feedback, please do get back to us. You can do so on policy at asa.org.au. There's also a forum thread. So members, I encourage you to log on to the ASA website. You're welcome to drop a comment in there. Okay. In the meantime, hope you enjoy listening to this episode and look forward to receiving your feedback. Thanks, Peter. Thanks for uh, giving up some time this morning to have a chat with me about the Honeysuckle Health proposal, which is quite detailed and I think warrants a little bit of plain language explanation.
1: I think there are a couple of broad brushstrokes to take away from the proposal, and in fact, the amended proposal essentially is just about changing the power balance away from individuals negotiating with a small company to individuals being swept up by coercive buying power. And the other thing to address is what exactly is value-based payment and what it means. Because those are the things that our members are worried about and those are the things that stand to take us down this uh, Americanisation of the health system to our patients' detriment.
0: So when I went through this, the first thing that I've noticed right at the very, very top was that this was released on the 23rd of December last year. And I always think dropping things like this just before Christmas, there's a reason people do that.
1: I think you're right. It might be much preferable to the applicants if it escaped all scrutiny at all.
0: They wanted it to be swept under the carpet and have us all go on holiday for Christmas and not deal with it. But we got hold of it very quickly and we did spend, I think you spent a lot of Christmas talking with lawyers and preparing our submissions. So thank you for that, Peter.
1: It's a pleasure. We had great legal assistance.
0: That's true. So the first bit, and I'm going to go through it, in, as I said, in a bit of detail. So the first clause, so 1.3, is that Honeysuckle Health is a conglomeration between NIB Health and between Cigna. I went back and I looked at who Cigna is. So it is a global health services company. And as you can do with these big companies that are listed, you can look at their annual reports. So in the 2020 annual report, they had managed to increase their adjusted revenue by 14% to $160 billion. And they delivered earnings of $18.45 per share. Now, how I interpret that is from a financial point of view, they're doing pretty well as a health provider.
1: Well, that's right. The ultimate duty of the company is to the shareholder to maximize profits. That's not to say I don't think that a profit-earning company can't successfully run a service business, but it is obvious that the main goal is is to make a profit for shareholders.
0: That's right. That's their fiduciary responsibility, isn't it? It's to shareholders, not necessarily to what they call their clients and who we would call patients.
1: Exactly. There's conflict there between the customers and the owners. I'm
0: coming down to clause one point. So one thing I thought that they point out here is that private health insurers go into different arrangements with the different private hospitals. And I thought that's something that our members might not know, that there's lots of other negotiations going on in the background and that the same arrangements between insurers and different hospitals don't occur.
1: Yes. Unfortunately, in the private hospital sector, Susie, there isn't an independent fee schedule like our MBS or AMA fee schedule. So every time hospital agreements with health funds are negotiated, it's a fairly free negotiation from what I believe talking to people in the industry. And so these negotiations are a little bit fluid and therefore they depend to a great extent on the balance of power between the health funds and the hospital.
0: And we've had that play out here in Victoria. So we've had Bupa negotiate some arrangements with hospitals where a Bupa patient will not be able to be charged an out-of-pocket fee. And that's the contract that's been signed between those hospitals and Bupa. So that means any surgeon, any anesthetist, any health provider, whether they realize it or not, they can't charge an out-of-pocket fee for a patient in that hospital. You don't know it unless you look very carefully at the bylaws when you sign up to work in this hospital and get your accreditation that you're also signing up to no-gap booper patients.
1: I think that's just a great warning of what we can expect if the concentration of market power in the hands of a few insurers is allowed to happen.
0: Exactly. So, this also talks about providers generally agree not to charge a gap to the customer because I can see from the health insurer's point of view, they really want to deliver financial certainty to their customers.
1: I think, it's worth pointing out the difference in rebates for different procedures because certainly... Where I practice, not many people charge patients a great out-of-pocket or any out-of-pocket for things like uh, gastroscopy. Uh, And in fact, a lot of eye surgery, I believe, is done on a no-gap basis. And that's because those doctors, those providers, consider the rebate adequate. But there'd be many fewer people charging no-gap for a more complicated operation, but with a less favorable rebate. So doctors are also concerned about charging out of pockets to the patients and will minimise them when they can. And that is very well demonstrated in the fact that most gastroscopies, for example, are done without gap. So I think that every operation has to be assessed on its merits, which is why it's very important for people to have the independence to be able to decide when the rebate from the fund is enough and when it requires topping up.
0: Exactly. And I do discuss that in a little five minute podcast that I'm hoping to share with members who are trying to work out rebates and gaps and things like that. Going down through their proposals. So Honeysuckle Health, it sounds like a lovely name. The origin of the name is that the NIB office in Australia is on Honeysuckle Drive in Newcastle. So the next thing that they talk about is that they are going to be acting clearly as a buying group and they're going to be acting on behalf of other private health insurers to buy health services from health providers.
1: Yeah, that's right. So we already have these loose buying groups in Australia, so it's not actually a new concept. What is important to us though is that no group gets too big and also we have to think about the character of the company that's proposing these buying groups. NIB, for example, is perhaps one of the trickier funds for doctors to deal with and, for example, are the only major fund with with no known gap product. So we can see that they're looking to drive a fairly hard line and ignore the independent ability of doctors to set fees appropriate for the service they provide. So that's also a concern, the size of the buying group and the, the nature of the entity dealing with.
0: It's mentioned somewhere else in the proposal, but it's a good point that you make there about NIV in that they only offer a no-gap product because that is what they're going to offer. They want the proposal to health providers from Honeysuckle Health to be the same as the current NIV arrangement.
1: Yeah, that's right, Susie, which means that, once again, take the example of gastroscopy where the doctor and the health fund agree that the rebate is acceptable, then the patient has a no-gap experience. But let's say that same patient has a hip replacement and the doctor decides to charge a $500 out-of-pocket fee to the patient, then NIB will not give the patient any kind of refund. And so the doctor is forced to choose between charging an acceptable fee or generating a large out-of-pocket for the patient. So it is really a very harsh game with the patient's finances and a bit of brinkmanship on behalf of the health fund.
0: Again, getting into the nitty-gritty of what they are proposing for health providers, so people who've signed up to NIB Clinical Partners Program, which houses the no gap arrangement, That's exactly what it says here at Clause 4.27, that the HH Buying Group will broaden access to that program. They're looking at getting people on board with their current clinical partners program, which for us is the no-gap product from NIB.
1: So let's be clear, that is a stable of preferred providers who have a stark choice whether to accept the rebate that NIB proposes, or to oblige the patient to pay the entire fee minus the contribution from Medicare. That is the choice that the system forces upon doctors.
0: That's really well put. And that's their opening gambit is to expand that program.
1: They are holding the patients to ransom in a financial sense. You know what I mean?
0: They also talk about negotiating these medical purchaser provider agreements. That's ultimately what they're trying to do is become a big contract negotiator. What are your thoughts on that?
1: I think, Susie, that the most important thing that our health sector requires is independent doctors and independent hospitals. And these are instruments to reduce our independence and our autonomy. But at the end of the day, the fundamental shift is a power shift away from providers, including hospitals and doctors, and to the insurers. Because once you've wrapped us up with a big medical provider purchaser agreement, then the conditions are set. Whereas what we have in this country now is independent doctors treating independent patients on a case by case basis. And for that autonomy to persist, we've kind of got to resist these efforts to bundle us all up and for the funds to take control of the fees and the conditions under which we treat the patients.
0: That's a really good point, Peter. And just to clarify, so an MPPA is a medical purchaser provider agreement. So that's when the health insurance will negotiate arrangements with medical providers. And the HPPA is a hospital purchaser provider agreement. So that's like what we discussed before with Bupa and those hospitals in terms of charging no out-of-pockets for their patients. You did make a really good point before about the conditions. And that's one thing that I, again, I'm a bit concerned about, that if you come under this scheme, and I'm quoting from their proposal, the medical specialists also, also agree on data sharing and quality target requirements. And we've seen NIB with white codes use medical specialist data and share that with the public. And you can argue that there's good and bad reasons for that to occur. But this concept of quality target requirements, that to me opens the door for pay for performance rebates. What are your thoughts there?
1: Absolutely, Susie. It does open the door for what they will euphemistically call value-based payment Mm -hmm. or pay for performance which means that somehow these metrics are meant to assess outcome and quality of care. But of course, as we know, people's practices are different and some people have a practice with a lot of high acuity, high risk patients and others have a different practice altogether where the complications might be lower.
0: Exactly. And they make that very explicit in clause 4.15, that they are going to be looking at payment of performance incentives once there have been agreed benchmarking outcomes. And we've seen also when payment for performance has been introduced in other countries that it then leads to differences in patient selection.
1: There are these tales of, about hospitals which no longer like to take on very complicated revision surgery because the outcomes are expected to be quite poor. So, so you, you do hear stories about cherry picking and about changing your practice to generate better outcome. But at the end of the day, these data analytics are actually a way to take control of the negotiations and to introduce what's called value-based payments, which really means that the health fund can just decide how much to pay you based on these dubious data analytics which actually just means that the health insurer changes the fees, changes the conditions in a unilateral way. The other thing that we can't uh, overlook here is that by having these networks, these MPPAs, which of course would produce networks of providers, all of a sudden then we have this situation where a patient might receive a very different rebate for the exact same service depending on whether they got that service from an in-network or out-of-network provider.
0: And we've seen that as being a really big problem in the US about receiving treatment out of network and the fees that result. It's a really good point there, what you said about data analytics. So they're very clear in their proposal that the data analytics will be used, and I quote, for conducting collective commercial negotiations on behalf of participants. So participants there are the other health insurers.
1: Absolutely. So really what we can see Is an attempt to create an amount of market power which borderlines on the coercive so that we have to enter into these things because I don't think it's likely that any individual doctor or hospital would voluntarily enter into these agreements. So the only way to ensure participation is to amass a significant amount of market power so that the providers felt that they uh, couldn't financially afford to miss out on that share of the work.
0: Talking about market power, they also talk about this and how it might affect particular geographical areas of Australia. And they think it's actually a requirement, again, quoting from the proposal, to have a strong network of providers in a regional area. So what I'm concerned about there is in a particular regional area, most people will be in a network and that if you're not in the network, that will severely disadvantage you because you will start seeing less patients being referred to you.
1: I think that's quite possible, Susie, in a small to medium-sized centre, It's quite conceivable that 60-70% of the providers end up as part of this network and then all of a sudden you haven't really got patient choice because not every doctor the patient could choose to see participating in the network.
0: Exactly. And I think that's also particularly relevant for specialties where they may want to have preferred people that they refer to. So for example, complex obstetrics might have particular radiologists that they refer to for their ultrasounds and so forth. That then limits their ability to refer to other specialists of their preference.
1: Absolutely, Susie. I mean, our health system in Australia is very good because it doesn't treat uh, us as an interchangeable group of people with identical skill sets and identical values. It it accepts that patients are individual and that doctors are individual and we can match the individual patients with the individual doctors to achieve the best health outcomes.
0: And I think in part of that grouping us together as being identical, they're looking at pay-for-performance markers. But it does also say, and I'm looking at Clause 2.30 now, what I'm very, very worried about, that they will ensure that providers adhere to requirements around registration, qualification and other terms and conditions of the schemes and networks does that sound like managed care to you
1: it does it's not at all inconceivable that those conditions might include where you send someone for their x-ray where you sent them for their blood test, and in which hospital you treated them so that really does sound a lot like managed care and of course Cigna are a large provider of managed care in America. So I think that what we can certainly applaud this application for is its disarming honesty in acknowledging all the things they wish to introduce to our Australian health system. (laughs) The trouble is I don't think many of them are that welcome in our excellent hybrid system where we have true universal healthcare and the private health sector stands out for its choice, access and quality and the matching of individual patients with individual doctors.
0: Well put. It is disarmingly honest, isn't it? They also talk about contract management and dispute resolution. So they spell it out very clearly that they will be managing the contracts on behalf of a large group of private health insurers and handling all the dispute resolution. I'm concerned there that if one of us as an individual practitioner were to have a dispute, we're putting ourselves up against a big corporation.
1: Yes, in Australia, Susie, as you know, doctors aren't really allowed to gang up and negotiate for fees collectively. But if we put against an insuring buying group, which has that permission, then there's a huge power imbalance. So if our system relies on individual doctors, then we need to be able to be treated as individuals. And a proposal like this wants to enforce one rule for all and to ignore the individuality of the small doctors and small practices, which have uh, underpinned Australian healthcare very well.
0: Exactly. And it sounds like it's going to be more work for doctors. And then 4.4, they're very clear in pointing out that negotiation of HPPAs, and I, and I know this is referring to HPPAs, says in particular can be time consuming and at times protracted with some HPPAs taking up to 16 months to negotiate. That's pretty clear and honest because what has occurred, say, in America is they have formed these healthcare organisations. So I could then say that if we were to go down this path, doctors might have to organise themselves and start entering into these negotiations. Now, 16 months of negotiation, that's a lot of time. That's a lot of energy when usually we'd be caring for patients.
1: Yeah, exactly, Susie. And the other fundamental change in the healthcare system structure that that would bring about is doctors acting collectively. That would be a fundamental change for our system if we had to negotiate en masse. And once again, that I don't think that would probably drive healthcare costs down. I think that would uh, decrease variation and autonomy, but I'm not sure that that could be guaranteed to reduce healthcare costs. But whatever the case, the doctors collectively bargaining with these big groups for these MPPAs would be a new epoch in Australian healthcare.
0: And it's something that occurs in America. So it definitely is taking us closer to the American style managed care.
1: Yeah, I think so. In America, practices have got larger and departments in hospitals spend a lot more time and resources on negotiating these contracts.
0: And again, they're very clear further on through the proposal at 4.6 to say that the Cycle Health Buying Group will reduce the need for duplication of resources and processes. That's for the health insurers, which concerns me because that's not going to be passed on to health providers. I see it actually producing an increase in the resources and process that we will need in order to be involved in these contract negotiations.
1: Well, yes, the reason they can make the claim that it is simplified is because they haven't got to deal with individual doctors and practices. They can just say take it or leave it and walk away. So that, of course, streamlines the negotiation process from the insurer point of view. It
0: says it will reduce the prices or the costs associated with establishing, negotiating and managing contracts. But at the moment, we don't really have any costs in managing these contracts.
1: That's because we treat individual episodes of care as individual episodes and we don't need contract negotiations because we have an efficient system. There's no need for the kind of uh, negotiation that the insurers want.
0: Um, Moving on to the next section, maybe their way of embracing our individuality is they're going to be collecting data and owning the data on us. And they're very clear, again, about what they're going to collect data on. And it's the quality that we offer, our compliance with the claims and the accuracy of our claims and the benefits paid to us as well. So our financial data.
1: Well, Susie, I don't think anyone would argue that clinical audit is important and necessary and that accurate billing is very, very important and we need to avoid any kind of inaccurate fraudulent billing. And so no one could deny that, but all of those things could be handled in other ways. We've got clinical audit, which can be organised by doctors and hospitals, and that would perhaps have better engagement by clinicians rather than be collected by these large insurers because they might want to use them to determine what they pay us and the conditions that they apply to us. So, and speaking of the compliance with billing, one of the complexities that this is going to introduce is that if these big buying groups are allowed to enter the market, then we'll end up with insurer-specific fee schedules. So gone will be the days of having a Medicare benefit schedule slash relative value guide-based bill if the health funds have their way, we'll have a different fee schedule for each health fund. And so we'll have the American situation where people's practices have to deal with multiple fee schedules from multiple insurers. And that's yet another reason not to go down the pathway of value-based payments, because it gets away from what we consider to be more independent fee schedules and down to these dubious, unilaterally controlled insurer-based fee schedules.
0: That's a really good point because at the moment we have the Commonwealth Medicare benefit schedule and we have the ASA's RVG, but we also have the AMA one and they do differ in small areas very slightly. So we're potentially opening up to having multiple, multiple schedules set by different insurers.
1: Yeah, that's right. So what we really would seek to preserve is the MBS, the Medicare Benefit Schedule, because that is how the Commonwealth contributes to medical care. And we would also like to preserve an independent way that anaesthetists especially could generate an invoice, and that's using the Relative Value Guide. Of course, as we all know, the unit value is the multiplier that determines the absolute fee, and that can certainly be negotiated, and that's quite an individual consideration. But to move on to insurer-specific fee schedules, the way into that is the use of such things like uplift fees where you just get a nominated sum of money unilaterally proposed by an insurer and all of a sudden you've got an invoice which isn't developed purely as a multiple of the relative value guide. There's been the introduction of these other arbitrary sums and that could have dilutes the strength of our independent way of setting fees which would over time undermine our clinical autonomy and our financial autonomy.
0: One thing I wanted to come back to is one of the points of data that they're collecting is about provider quality. And there's a difference in how a health insurer measures health outcomes versus how a health provider might measure it versus how a patient might measure it. So some conditions are not curative and are chronic. And for a patient, they might consider a small reduction in their pain, a slight improvement in their mobility, a health improvement. But for a health insurer, they might not see that as a good quality outcome because this patient still needs ongoing physio, will still need potentially surgical interventions in coming years. A health insurer may not see that as a successful health outcome.
1: No, I think you're right, Susie. And, and not everything is open to being very well measured, which is why we're going to see certain surgical specialties and operations targeted for this kind of innovation. So the biggest example is arthroplasty uh, and short-stay arthroplasty. And I don't think anyone could argue that getting people mobile and out of hospital as soon as is safe wouldn't be a great benefit to patients. There's no one who's going to argue against well-executed shorts. The trouble is that different doctors have got different practices. And while a healthy 50-year-old having a hip replacement might be in and out of hospital in 48 hours, that's not the case for the orthopedic surgeon who's got an elderly high comorbidity caseload. And they might all stay four days in hospital and go up to inpatient rehabilitation. And those data analytics are going to look very, very different for the two practices. And so that's the kind of thing that we're a little bit worried about, So these data might make doctors look very different from each other in terms of quality, but actually what's happening is they're serving the patients that they have been referred.
0: I'm a bit disconcerted that when they list the people who we potentially affected by this proposal, they mention the health insurers, the hospitals, the medical specialists and general practitioners, allied health, but they don't mention patients.
1: Yeah, the patient is the uh, elephant in the room here. What we have in Australia is a system that matches individual patients to individual doctors, uh, and those doctors are free to to treat the patients in a facility of their choice. Our system relies on three strong pillars. We've got the insurers who are the payers, and then we've got strong hospitals and strong doctors, and that structure enables patients to be treated as individuals in a very efficient way. What this kind of application seeks is to weaken the other two pillars so that there's no meaningful negotiation. And the patients will suffer from that because the terms of care will be increasingly dependent upon the insurers. And even with the very best intentions and the very best will, without strong hospitals and strong doctors to offset the ambitions of the health funds to generate increased profits, the protection that our current system offers the patient will be eroded over time.
0: When you're talking about increased profits, that does lead me down to Clause 3.27. They are saying that if there's coordination amongst the competitors, so the other health insurers, by bringing them into this buying group, it will not lead to premium increases for consumers. And I'm not sure that we've seen that demonstrated overseas.
1: No, the total healthcare expenditure is likely to rise. And there's no logical reason why it shouldn't uh, under this proposal, because once the necessity to haggle with the hospitals and doctors is done away with, then there's really nothing stopping you increasing premiums if you want to. So the central premise that this will put downward pressure on premiums is very difficult to justify. I think it'll put downward pressure on out-of-pocket expense because the health funds will just dictate the terms and the fees. But that's not the same as decreasing premiums, and it's not the same as decreasing all of health system expenditure. It just means that the money winds up with the health insurance.
0: I'm jumping ahead now and just changing topics. So Clause 4.26, they're talking about the no gap experience for customers. And I mentioned that earlier, that from the insurer's point of view, they're very keen to deliver a product where there are fixed or known costs their customers because that's what they think they complain most about. And they quote the Ipsos 2019 Healthcare and Insurance Australia study. And when I looked that up, it's purchase markets research. There's different ways of looking at patient feedback. There's these sorts of market research agencies and there's also the private health ombudsman, which is more a complaints mechanism. But it was interesting that patients reported that they were happiest about access to care and trusting their clinicians rather than about having a fixed price.
1: Yes, that's right, Susie. So if you go to the website of Private Healthcare Australia, which is the peak lobby group for the private health insurance industry, then you'll see very neatly summarised the things that attract patients to private healthcare and those are essentially quality access and choice and those are the things that draw patients who have got free access to care in the public system to our private healthcare system. There's no doubt that out-of-pocket expenses are undesirable and that's why most doctors would try very hard to limit out-of-pocket expenses. But to preserve your patient and clinician autonomy and to have the choice, access and quality, which are said to be the drawcards for our private health insurance, then you really need to have independent doctors.
0: That's a really good point. So even they say it themselves. It's about quality, access and choice. It's not necessarily about having a known upfront fee.
1: Exactly. I mean, the thing about insurance and the American experience is a little different is that there's always going to be tension between the contribution from various bodies. And in Australia, there's a contribution from the government, uh, and then there's a contribution from the insurer, and then the rest is up to the patient because the agreement, the contract, the only contract worth having in medicine is the contract between the patient and the doctor. And so the best way to look at insurance is to think that the doctor charges the patient for an episode of care, and then the patient receives assistance from the other funders. And so in our system, that's Medicare and the health insurance. And 90% of the time in Australia, that takes care of 100% of the medical fee. But for the other episodes of care, there is a patient contribution. And I don't think that there's any aspect of insurance that has completely escaped this specter of co-payment. In America, they talk a lot about moral hazard and the necessity for co-payment. So I don't think that following an American system is guaranteed to uh, get rid of patient contributions.
0: Just summing up, I think there's a few things this proposal does. It's putting a lot of power into the private health insurers. It's opening up doors for managed care as well as limiting choice for patients and potentially contributing to complex and protracted contract negotiations of which the health providers will have to bear the burden of those costs.
1: Yeah, it sounds like there are dangers here, including uh, decreased patient and doctor autonomy, decreased power in the industry of uh, hospitals and doctors, and an increased administrative burden for hospitals and doctors. So there seems to be a lot of downside and not a lot of upside. Don't forget that there's a stark difference between the American and the Australian health system in that our system is a hybrid system with a very high quality free public health system, which the Americans do not have as a baseline. Our private healthcare system is distinguished by those three attributes acknowledged widely throughout the industry of choice, access, and quality. And these proposals might diminish those qualities without offering any substantial benefits to us.
0: Exactly, and without offering substantial benefit to the patient as well, because entering in on that NIB clinical partners program.
1: That's right, Susie. And of course, uh, indexation, it would be in the hands of the insurers as well. So what is a satisfactory rebate? one year might not be in five years' time. And uh, it is a bit of a risk for patients because NIB obliges you choose between a big out of pocket and, and acceptance of their terms.
0: That's a really good point, Peter. We haven't even talked about indexation. Is there anything else that you wanted to raise about this Honeysuckle Health Proposal from Cigna and NIB?
1: Nothing except to say that great caution is required before we enter onto this sort of process. I think it's important not to be swept up in the talk about the death spiral of the health insurance industry and to be dragged into wholesale changes to the structure of our industry in an effort to make it more affordable and sustainable. There are two different issues here. One is how the industry is funded and the other is how it is structured. And this is about the structure of the industry. And I think it's very important for hospitals, doctors and health insurers to maintain equal power. And only that way will the patient have the benefit of treatment by individual doctors in individual hospitals.
0: Yeah, I think you made a really good point there about the death spiral of private healthcare. We've seen some interesting figures that show that there's been an increase in membership and increase in profits in the last quarter. And I think I'm going to record some more details about that in a separate podcast.
1: Yeah, I think that the death spiral has been seized upon by the health insurers to urge changes that they claim will make the system more sustainable. But I think that they're confusing two separate issues. What we don't want to do is erode what we've got, which is a great system. And if we don't get the changes right, if we can't progress in a positive way, then everyone will lose out the patients, uh, the doctors, the hospitals And and the health insurers, because unless we get the product right, people won't see the value in it.
0: Yeah, exactly. Great. Oh, thank you. Thanks, Peter. Thanks thanks for your time today.
1: Oh, it's a pleasure, Susie.
0: Always interesting talking to you about these sorts of things. I'm glad you've got your head really wrapped around it and leading the conversations with all the health insurers and hospitals on this. It's been wonderful.
1: Oh, thanks, Susie. It's been a, big, a year or two.
0: Well, I hope you found that proposal as concerning as we do around the ASA council table. There have been a number of amendments since then and also the preliminary authorization has sought to limit them further. So the preliminary authorization is for five years rather than the 10 years that was originally sought. And it also seeks to limit the market share that Honeycycle Health will not provide the clinical partners program that we discussed in the podcast to the major private health insurers where this would result in the participants in the program representing more than 40% of the private health insurer market. So they are seeking to limit the market share of that particular program, but not of Honeysuckle Health altogether. At the time that I am recording this, we are still going through this preliminary authorization. So do keep an eye on the website to see what our response will be. So, just to highlight that there are two web pages that might be of interest. The first one is a members only advocacy page, and I'll put a link to these on the show notes. So, the members advocacy page is where you will find the big issues that the ASA is tackling at the moment. Because managed care is such a big issue, we've also created a separate web page for that, which is where all the resources sit, and that is publicly available. I also encourage you to have a look at our website, asa.org.au, and look under represent and look for the managed care tab. And there you will find a whole lot of resources to help you understand what managed care is if you haven't heard about it. I'll point you in the direction of two webinars. The first one that we held was on the 26th of November, 2020. And in that, you will hear from Associate Professor Jonathan Gall, who is one of our colleagues from the United States, who gives us a glimpse into how managed care started in the US and what it looks like now. The other resource that I'll point you in the direction of is the managed care webinar that we held on the 12th of May, and in particular, the transcript there from Mr. Stephen Milgate. You can hear what other leaders have said about this issue with regards to Australian healthcare. We have a finely balanced system of private healthcare in Australia and a universal public health system, which we should fight to maintain. If this proposal makes you concerned about how this will change the landscape of the Australian healthcare system as we know it, and you feel like doing something, then again, we encourage you to write. The deadline for submissions to the ACCC is the 11th of June and they particularly value hearing from members of the community. Further details of our concerns and the link to the ACCC submission, again, can be found on the ASA website, asa.org.au. Follow the links to Managed Care. Otherwise, feel free to share any feedback that you might have with the ASA the best email is asa at asa.org.au. All right. Happy reading, happy writing, and hope you stay safe out there. This podcast was produced by the Australian Society of Anesthetists. More podcasts can be found on the ASA website asa.org.au. Music was La Dance by Maidon, which can be found on the Free Music Archive website. We hope you enjoyed listening.